First of all, my name's Tanner. Usually Dan or Dan are up here. Tanner today, all right? I um, want to start by just talking to you about uh, my child, because it's the obligation of a new parent, okay? So my wife, Katie, and I, we have a little boy, as you may know. Uh, he's just over a year old now. His name's Emmett. And for those of you who know what kids around that age are like, you probably are aware of what we're dealing with right now. Uh, he's been walking for a couple of months, and so he's in every cupboard, every drawer. He's so curious, and he's a boy, so he's super rough, and he likes to tumble around and wrestle, even like not with us, but he's, he's rough outside of that just with himself. Like he'll look out our front window and he'll just calmly be looking outside. He loves to watch cars drive by. And then he'll just start banging his head on the window. There's something physical about boys. And so that's some of the stuff we're dealing with. But so many new developments that he's going through, so many new things. Every day it seems like he's understanding a little bit more. We'll say stuff to him. And he, like, furrows his eyebrows like, I'm trying so hard to figure out what you're saying, you know. So it's a fun, fun stage that we're in right now. Uh, one of the newer developments, though, is a slightly dangerous one, okay? Uh, just in the last two weeks or so, he's learned how to scale our stairs. Uh, some of you have already told the story about this, but uh, he's learned how to scale the stairs. Like I said, he's been walking for a few months and uh, hasn't really bothered with them. We have uh, our living area has stairs that go down and stairs that go up, and he's, we have a gate in front of the ones that go down because we understand gravity and we know what would happen if he got close to those ones. But the, up, the stairs going up, he just hasn't bothered with them until the last two weeks or so. So last Sunday after church, uh, Katie and I were getting prepared for Easter dinner with our family, like many of you were, and we were both uh, in the kitchen doing stuff. And uh, while Emmett's uh, development that he knew he could climb the stairs has progressed really quickly, our parenting awareness that he could climb the stairs has not quite progressed as quickly. So you probably see where this is going. Uh, we're distracted in the kitchen, we're getting stuff cooked, ready, food to bring to Easter dinner, and uh, we're, not, we're not great, real experienced parents, but we are starting to have that awareness of like there's a good kind of silence when your kid is playing and a bad kind of silence, and uh, he's a really good, he plays on his own a lot, and so we kind of have gotten used to, if he's quiet, let's just leave him alone and let's let him do it and let's do our thing. So we're in the kitchen getting stuff ready, distracted, and I think both of us, I think, noticed that that bad silence was happening, but only like a quarter of a second of it, and then it was immediately followed by the sound of a 24-pound toddler falling down the stairs, just boom, boom, boom. Oh, I don't know. I, I personally didn't have a fast enough reaction to time to see any of it happen, okay? I was, I was facing away from the stairs, and so I didn't even see anything happen, I don't know which step he fell from. It's probably best we all don't know which step he fell from. But uh, so, so it was just so fast. You guys know how this happens. And I didn't have time to react. I didn't even see it. And I didn't have time to even make it to him to, like, you know, do what you do when your kid falls down and, like, try to comfort him. Because my wife, I don't even think he reached the bottom of the stairs. And she was there. She's holding him. She's, she's trying to get him calmed down because he, of course, he's got a bump on his head. And he's crying. And it was that terrible kind of crying where he inhaled for 30 seconds. 
and, and you're like, are you going to ever breathe again? It, it, it was bad. It was so bad, and it's the worst, worst when that is happening. But uh, I promise he's okay. He had a little bump on his head. Uh, within a minute, he was calmed down. We're joking around. Obviously, you try to get him to laugh and stuff because you're like, just don't be hurt. So, so he was fine. He had a bump on his head, but he was fine. And I made me think about, well, think, because I've got to think about it, how to deal with kids when they get hurt. I think we all kind of have our own uh, philosophy for how to deal with it. I remember hearing when I was younger, uh, but I was involved with helping little kids. I played sports growing up, and so uh, kind of coaching younger kids than I. And uh, somebody told me, when you come up on a kid who is hurt, you should tell them, you're all right, it's going to be okay. Like, try to just make sure that they know that they're going to be okay, because so much of it is they're afraid, they're scared of what happened, you know. So that's, that's one end of the spectrum. Then the other end of the spectrum, I'm sure there's some of you who are thinking, no, you, you need to validate the fact that they are afraid and that they are hurt and whatever. I'm not here to uh, lecture on parenting as long as you won't lecture me on child safety, okay? <laughs> that's the deal. I'm not here to do that. It just had me thinking about how we learn to handle difficulty in life, though. Because when you're little, when you're a toddler or a little kid, and you fall and you hit your head, or as we call it in our house, you donk your head. That's how we <laughs> say it. Just a funny word. Anyways, when you, fall, when you fall and hurt yourself, when you're really little, uh, somebody's usually there to just hold you, comfort you, kiss wherever you got hurt, and make sure you know that you're okay. And then we get a little bit older and say you scrape your knee. I remember one time I was doing something dumb on my bike, like you do when you're a kid, and I was trying to do a front back wheelie, and so you stick your foot in the front wheel. It was, it's a really bad idea, okay? And I fell, scraped my knee really bad, and my parents weren't there because I was out riding my bike. So I had to ride my bike home with a bloody knee. But when I get home, my parents were there to give me something to stop the bleeding, probably got me something to drink, get me calmed down in that way. So that gap between when I'm hurt and when I'm comforted just grows a little bit longer, right? And then you become an adult, and you walk through your house at night in the dark, and you stub your toe, and you just got to clench your fist and bite your tongue and just hope you don't die, right? <laughs> you just hope, hope you don't, like, lose it totally. So uh, I'm talking about physical pain thus far, but not to downplay physical pain at all, but I think we can all agree that the pains that we've experienced in our lives, physical is not always that bad. There's, some, there's a pain medicine they can give me for my physical pain. There's some, some way to alleviate physical pain. You kind of just deal with it and it's over with. But the other types of pain that we experience are much harder, I think. I think they're, they much they hurt much worse in different ways. I think if we were honest, all these other difficulties in all other areas of our life, it's just hard to be in that place between the pain has begun and the time when you find comfort for it or when there is some sort of resolution or whatever it is. Most of our difficulties in life, too, are not resolved on a convenient, like, satisfactory timetable. I think we like to think that, oh, this will this will be over really quick, and a lot of times it's just not that way. We have our plans, we have our outlooks, we have our hopes for when we get into a difficult time, okay, this will be over soon, and sometimes it's longer than we hope. Uh, it's reality has its own timetable, right? I had, I heard this quote about 
happiness, and this is the quote, it's happiness equals reality minus expectations, which is kind of a sad thing, but I think it's true. When you, when you live your life trying to pare down your expectations about how things are going to go, especially in your difficult times, your happiness will be greater because you're not sitting there thinking, this should have went a different way, my life should have went a different way, this scenario should have went a different way, this relationship would have, should have went a different way. It's sad, but it's just the truth. So what I'm hoping to do today is give you a picture of how to endure in that middle ground. How do, how do Christians look at between that place of the pain has begun and someday I might get comfort, hopefully I get comfort. How do we do that? Um, our culture, our whole world is in like a mass panicked, in of trying to innovate ways that we can prevent these kind of pains and or numb out from these kind of pains. It's something that's going on all the time. We're getting marketed all sorts of things that are supposed to alleviate that pain or keep us from getting into different pains, but some of them are just inevitable. I'll exaggerate for a moment. I'll probably, like, this is a major exaggeration, but, like, if somebody heard me telling a story about my child falling down the stairs, they might market me some sort of helmet that my kid can wear in the house so he doesn't hurt himself. That's what I'm trying to say is we, we, we want so badly to avoid all of our pains. So that's, that's what we experience all the time. Um, this isn't bad. It's not bad to have ways to prevent ourselves from having pain. But I think what we're losing in focusing on how to prevent it and how to numb it out is what I think God wants for us to realize is available in our pain, and that's that there's meaning to be ascribed to our pain, and in those times of trouble, uh, there's meaning and purpose behind it that he wants to show us before we get to that place of comfort, right? So I believe God longs for us to develop that ability to know, okay, I'm in a trial right now. I'm in a tough time. I've, I've got myself hurt somehow, maybe physically, maybe in some other way. And between now and the time I experience comfort, what do I do? How can I grow? So I want to read a passage from the Gospel of John today. Uh, John 11, it's actually a passage I'm sure a lot of churches heard from last week because it's a popular Easter uh, resurrection message. It's the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Um, you can talk about, we're going to talk about resurrection today because as we'll find out later, resurrection isn't meant to be celebrated just one day a year or even one, week, one day a week. It's supposed to be a daily thing. And so that's my excuse for talking about resurrection the week after Easter, okay? Um, before we read, two things I want to ask of you. I want to ask of you to try your best, for those of you who know this story, to try to read it with fresh eyes, try to get into the uh, perspective of the people that we're going to focus on throughout it, to try and understand the point of uh, what I'm trying to make here with how we deal with trials. And then second, I want to ask you, to as I'm talking, as we're reading, to search in your heart where you might be currently in one of those places between the pain has begun and comfort has come or a resolution has come. I'm guessing we're all probably in one of those uh, in some uh, way, in some fashion. Okay, so let's read. We're going to read John 11:17 through 44. Quite a big chunk, but it's necessary to read it all. It says this, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. 
When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away this stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you? that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's focus on Martha's interaction with Jesus first. And if, if you are tracking with me, it's Martha and Mary today that we're going to look at because they're the ones in those middle places, that in-between place between their, their deep grief that their brother has died and some sort of comfort coming to them. So let's focus on Martha. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here my brother would not have died. If you look back to verse 3 in chapter 11, you'll see why she has some sort of precedent to say this to him. Turns out Lazarus had been sick, and they saw the direction that he was heading, and it says in verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. You'll see the precedent, and you also see in, in verse 3 uh, something, something important. It's that Martha and Mary are trying to say to Jesus, look, Jesus, we believe in you. We trust in who you have told us you are. We get clearly that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus had been really well acquainted with Jesus before this whole scenario happened. So they send word to Jesus because they believe in him. And then clearly from verse 21, the reason behind it, like any of us would ask this sort of thing, like, come because we believe you can help him. You can stop this. So there's belief and belief he can stop what's going to happen. And we need to think about how many times we say this sort of thing to God when we are 
troubled, when we're in times of trouble for ourselves, a lot of the time I feel like I feel it for other people. Lord, Lord, help those people, whatever it is. And then when it seems like he's not helping, we go, why aren't you stopping this, right? We, we often ask these same kind of questions. Um, how many times do we say it? We say it a lot. We have these, we, we have a, there's a void between our understanding of how things should go and how God plans for things to go. And here's, here's a point where I want to make a strong distinction. It's something that Dan Knutz is often, often reiterating, and I think it's such a good distinction to have, is the difference between questioning God and having questions for God, okay? There's a, there's a difference of heart in those two things here. And I don't think Martha or Mary are questioning God, like pointing their finger at him, blaming him, but there, there is a sense that they're like, Lord, you could have stopped this, right? And we do that too. And so something that we need to do is learn to not give in to the temptation to move from, I have a question for you, Lord, about why you haven't stopped something, to questioning, accusing, blaming, hardening, hardening our hearts toward God. That's an important distinction. Let's keep reading. She says, if, I, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I think this is the key for us to see. She's not accusing, she's not turning her heart against God. She's saying, look, I'm upset because my brother has died, but I trust in you still. I believe in you still. That belief that made me call out to you to come and help him has not gone away from me. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. If you're reading this, as I so kindly instructed you to with new, fresh eyes, it's kind of amazing to me that Martha is aware of the resurrection. In the story, Jesus isn't resurrected. In, in different Gospels, there's stories about Jesus bringing people, children back to life, people back to life, but the resurrection, the resurrection we just got done celebrating with Easter last week, it hasn't happened in the story. And so it's interesting that Martha here shows that there is a, there is a wide understanding among people who were Jewish at that time that there will be one day a resurrection of the dead. The books of Daniel, Ezekiel, the Psalms, and Job all point to a future day where all people will be resurrected again. So I think that's interesting to point out. This is this is. Her saying, yes, I know, I know someday, you know, the consolation that we give to many people who experience loss today even still is one day we'll get to see them again, one day their bodies will be made new, one day they'll be resurrected. And she goes, yes, I know that one day they'll be re re resurrected. Uh, I, had, I heard one pastor put it this way, though. It seems as though it's kind of like she's saying, I know he's going to be resurrected the last day. Seems like she's saying, I, I'm sure that that is the truth, but I'm still sitting here in this place between the pain has begun and the comfort has come. I don't have that comfort yet. And that, I think, is okay. Let's keep reading to see what Jesus does to encourage her and to lift her up. She says, I know he'll rise again in the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
So I think it's in these verses that there is the prescription of sorts for us when we are in these in-between places. What Jesus says, what he's communicating is so important for us. In these in-between places, we need to pick up a few things from what he says. First of all, uh, this is one of the I am statements of Jesus. If you've been around church for a while, you know that in the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself in these different ways by saying, I am, and then he fills in the blank with some uh, description of himself, some sort of metaphor about who he is and what he is going to do on earth. Um, it's hearkening back to the book of Exodus, Okay? And it's, it's so symbolic, and we can miss it so easily. In Exodus, when Moses is talking to Yahweh, the God the Father, God talking to him, and God is instructing Moses what to do, Moses goes, okay, I'll, I'm going to do all this stuff, God, but you're going to have to tell me who you are. You've got to tell me your name so that I can tell the people who you are. And God answers him with just a simple kind of mind-bending answer. He just says, I am who I am. And so when the people who are around Jesus hear him say these I am statements, before they even get to the metaphor part, they're hearing him say, I am. That means Jesus is claiming, I am God. Okay, there's people who claim that in the Bible, Jesus never claimed he was God. Yes, he doesn't maybe say it in English, I am God, I believe I'm God. If we look at it with the right eyes and with the right lens, understanding the Old Testament, we know that he is saying, I am God. So Jesus, these are the things that we need to believe in and live by believing in, he says, when we're in these times of trial. And just in life in general, live by believing these things, that he is, that he is God. And what does that mean? Here's the, here's the rest of the I am statement. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the author of resurrection. He's the one who is going to bring resurrection about. He's going to be the one to make resurrection available to all mankind. And he's the, the source of all life. And we can think about those like Martha was out in the future. She has belief in the resurrection, belief in life after death. Those things for her in her head are way out in the future. Jesus says, I am here today as the resurrection and the life. And this life, this idea of life is so important. We've had our pastor talk about just recently how eternal life that we're promised in the, in the Bible is not just like a long span of time. It's also a quality of that life. It's, it's a life marked by joy and peace and meaning and purpose. So joy, peace, meaning, and purpose in the times of trial too. We're supposed to experience some taste of resurrection here and now before we die, and life, surely we all want to experience life before we die, right? That's kind of a paradoxical, weird way to say it, but that's, that's the truth. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. And this believing in him, I think what Jesus is asking us is, don't believe in this, like, like I was saying earlier, just once a year on Easter, that he is the resurrection and the life, great, paint eggs, have a nice meal, whatever. It's not just a once-a-year thing. And it's not just a once-a-week thing where you come here and you are reminded about the resurrection, the life Jesus wants for us. It should be a daily thing. When he says, live by believing this, I think he's saying, you wake up and you believe it, and it will help you to get through these things. So Martha is in that in-between place. And I think, I, it's my opinion, that she is successfully placing her faith in Jesus. 
And he offers us and her a comfort to hold on to, that if we live by believing, we can have a taste of the resurrection that he is and a taste of that life marked by joy and peace and meaning even here today. So when you enter into your times of pain or when you're in your pain right now asking for God's help and God's help doesn't seem to come, I want to ask you, hope for you, that you would not move from having questions for God to questioning his character, his identity, who he is, questioning that he is the I am, that he is the resurrection and the life. Those are important things to carry along with you. Don't move, don't give into that temptation to point your finger at him. So let's look at Mary's interaction next. They're just slightly different. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same exact statement, same pain in her heart, same grief that her theological certainty could not take away in that moment. She falls down and she is, is just saying to him, like, if you, you could have stopped this, we asked you to stop it, you didn't come in time Why didn't you stop this? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. That's famously the shortest verse in the Bible. I want to ask a question. Does Jesus seem to rebuke the things that Mary and Martha bring to him? Does it seem like he's got some anger towards them about what they say to him? No, in fact, Jesus does what Paul later instructs the church in Rome to do, which is he weeps with those who weep. He understands the heart of these two women who have lost their closest friend, their brother. And it's a friend to him as well. And Jesus, I think he weeps, yes, because he's seeing these other people weep, but I think there's weightier reasons to him weeping, too. I want to talk about them for a second. First of all, I need to make a distinguishment as well. Mary and Martha are in a trial, okay? Trial is just a difficult time, and I'm not saying this is necessarily what happened, but the temptation for us all in trials is to move from that, I have a question for you, God. Why didn't you come and stop him from dying? To questioning God, okay? Trials, trials are in and of themselves are not meant to weaken our faith. But there are often temptations in our trials that could lead us into that place. Giving into a temptation to harden our heart against God. So there's a difference between trials and temptations. I believe right here, Mary and Martha are in a trial, they're not, they might be feeling tempted, but they are just in a trial. Trial is important. Trial is necessary for us. Uh, one author I read uh, in talking about the desert fathers, people who went out into the desert to uh, live in devotion to God fully, it, they said this about their belief about trials. It says, they believed that struggle is normal, necessary, even healthy in the spiritual life. The fallenness of the world imposes it, Discipleship requires it, and believers must choose to face it. So trial is not a bad thing. These people, these desert fathers, they went out and they sought out trial in a way because they knew it was like, I'm going to grow, I'm going to grow when I'm in that place of in-between, in-between the pain and some sort of comfort. 
And so here's what Jesus' weeping is, is showing. It's a showing, yes, of his compassion for his friends, but though there's like halfways this blame placed on Jesus because he didn't prevent it from happening, Jesus knows what really caused Lazarus to die, and it wasn't him being two days late to the funeral. It was not him uh, delaying his trip a little bit to his friend who is on his deathbed. The reason Lazarus is dead, and Jesus knows this full well, is sin. The world imposes it on us. The sin of the world comes, and it it creates difficulty in our lives. And he knows the real reasons for the difficulties you are experiencing, too. Sure, some are self-inflicted, but many of our difficulties, many of our trials that we're dealing with today are just the result of plain, sinful world all around us. It's just how it goes. So I want you to have an accurate picture, therefore, in who Jesus is and what, he, what his disposition toward us is when we are in our trials, when we're asking for help, Lord, when we're waiting for help. We have an example here of what, what Jesus does as he watches his children in pain, when he watches us go through our trials as well. And he doesn't enjoy our trials. He doesn't, he doesn't sit from his throne like snickering because we're having a tough time. And you know how we do like with teenagers who complain about stuff and we're like, oh, just wait like someday. I think Jesus really has a heart for us that he knows when we're dealing with a trial and it's the result of sin, he's got a heart for us. He doesn't want it. He never wanted us. It was never a part of the plan for us to deal with the effects of sin. It was never a part of the plan. Not once. So what does he do then if he doesn't laugh and if he's not just sitting there silently, coldly, uh, turning his back to us? What is he doing? I think that uh, what we get here in this story is a good picture of what he probably, his disposition toward you is when you're in your trials. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I think a lot of times I've read that for most of my life as just like he's sad. Of course he's sad. His friend has died. When I looked into the language, it was person after person was saying, this is actually like it's sadness, but it's mixed with just this righteous rage, which points to me even more as further evidence that Jesus is not mad about the fact that Mary and Martha have said, why didn't you come earlier? You could have prevented it. He's not mad about anything. He's mad at the sin that we are all having to deal with. And he, he groans deeply. He's deeply moved, and he just has this, he has this fire within him because he's frustrated, angered at the fact that we are dealing with this thing, sin, that we never should have had to deal with. But the reality is we're dealing with it, right? It's precisely this, this love which causes his own inner pain that moves the great I am to allow himself to be killed on the cross, hung to be given to us as a, a, to give to us the gift of resurrection. When we were talking about Easter with the junior hires the last few weeks, we were reading Romans 6.23, which is, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. There's that word life again. It's the, it's the will of God to give us this gift of full life, and it was his love for us, it's his knowledge of what we experience in our trials. God, God didn't have to uh, do something to identify with us, but Jesus, because he came to be man, incarnated, he now understands the deep grief that happens when you lose a friend. This is his close friend, and he understands it. It's this sort of feeling within him 
that moves him to go to the cross willingly, to give up his life. I want to encourage you, maybe go read Isaiah 53 today. Isaiah is a prophecy about what would happen to the Messiah, but it's, 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 it's brutal, right? Those of you who have seen the Passion of the Christ or any, any depiction of Jesus' crucifixion, a picture does the trick. Um, you, you, if you sit and ponder what he had to endure, and if you realize that it was his love that motivated him to do that for you and I, we're going we're gonna to look at our trials through a whole different lens, I think. Because I think we just think, God, when we're going through these difficult times, he's turned his back, and I'm asking for help, and I'm not getting it, and we think it's because he doesn't care, and we need to remember the cross. We need to remember last week, last Friday, right? We need to remember that. Because it was his love that motivated to do that, him to go to the cross. I want to read quickly 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Don't have to flip there. I'll read it for you. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by the fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy and glory, inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So God allows our trials, but it's his will to give meaning and purpose to them. It's his will to help us through the trials. We're meant to grow through them. We're meant to have our faith proven through them. And that only occurs when we do not give in to the temptation to turn our hearts against God, but we instead live by believing in who he is, what he did, what he taught us. Don't give in to that temptation. few things from Jesus before we close today. Jesus... Um, his part of this story is quite interesting. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus, this is going back in the story. This is a, I don't know why I did this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha, and her sister Martha. This Mary, it, this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea. So verse 4, he says, it's not going to end in death, but it's going to show somehow the glory. But before, before he goes and meets Lazarus and goes to Mary and Martha and, and accepts their call to him to come and help, he waits two days. 
It always seems weird, doesn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be weird if uh, our emergency services in Gillette waited like two hours before showing up? Like you break your leg and you call 911 like, I need to go to the hospital. And they, they show up two hours later and you're like, I already set my leg back in place and I'm, I'm like, I'm not better, but like could have used you earlier. We, I think we get that sense from Jesus, but there's, there's purpose behind everything Jesus does. And he, he lets us know. It's for the glory, God's glory so that God's son might be glorified through it. In verse 40, right before he raises Lazarus, when Martha's like, don't open the tomb, it stinks in there. He's like, all right, I got, I got a reason for this. He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Here's, here's why Jesus asks us to live by believing in our trials. Because God will be glorified through our trials when we keep on believing in him. That's, that's what I think the biblical message is. When you keep on believing, somehow, someway, God will be glorified. In this scenario, it was in this big miraculous show of Lazarus being raised from the dead. How will our difficulties, how will our trials be resolved? How will they end? I don't know. Pastorally, it would be irresponsible to say everybody's going to get their miracle, right? You hear people say that, totally irresponsible to say something like that. We don't know. Here's something I do know, though. I can just about 100%, I'm going to say 99.7% give you a guarantee, okay? So is it a guarantee? I don't know. Here's what I think is true, that if you live by believing, no matter what the outcome is, no matter what kind of comfort, no matter what kind of resolution occurs, there's going to be a change in you, and the change in you can be even greater glorifying of God than a miracle happening. I think the change in us can be even greater. The growth within in us can, can show people God's glory. And a lot of the times, it's so below the surface. It's things, it's conversations between God and you that are like down in here. It's not even in your head. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you are talking with God and you're wrestling with stuff that you're trying to hold on to your faith and you're just, you're fighting, you're in a trial, there's growth occurring. And it's deep below the surface. It's like planting a seed way deep down. Even if you water it, you don't see it for months. Who knows? But out of it, something good and true and beautiful grows and something that is glorifying to God. Verse 40, let's look at it again. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? With your area of struggle today, are you willing to believe? Are you willing to believe it? Jesus asked a couple times throughout this story. He tries to call out faith from Mary and Martha and everybody there standing there. And we don't know if people were chiming in if, yeah, sure, I believe, whatever. I bet it was silent. He asked these questions, and apart from Martha going, yeah, I know, it's, it's hard to believe in those times. But those people that day at Lazarus' tomb, they saw a man walk out of his grave with the mummy costume still on him, right? And he had to, ta- he had to be unwrapped. Those people saw a miracle that day. So that's glorifying to God. I want to ask you to envision, try to think of, and try to allow God to speak to you about how he might be glorified in the trial that you're standing in today. You're in between the place where you've fallen down the stairs and somebody's comforting you, right? You're in, the, in there and you're waiting for God to do something. You might be asking for him to do something. How might God be glorified? There's a, there's a piece of it that I think is just you keep on believing. You keep holding on to your faith. A couple summary points 
takeaway things for you to leave with today. In trials, don't question God, but also don't stop at your questions for him. I think if we linger in our questions for God, if, if Mary and Martha would have just kept going, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? The longer we linger there, too, the temptation grows to move on to that next step of pointing the finger at God, blaming him for whatever it is that you're going through. I think we need to move on at a certain point to, I'm going to do what Jesus says here. I'm going to live by believing. I'm going to choose with what will power I have to just live by believing somehow, some way, you're going to bring me through this, you're going to grow me, you're going to help me. So don't stop there. Go on to living by believing. Second, I want you to think about and recognize where you search for life. We talk about this eternal life, this gift of God, of eternal life that Jesus is claiming to bring to us. Where are we searching for it? Is it in the person of Jesus who has already come and made it available? Or am I looking for life in all these other different places? We need to recognize that. And have a picture for who God is and his disposition toward you in trials. Is he folding his arms, snickering at you, enjoying the fact that you're hurting and in pain? No. Make sure it's accurate. Make sure you realize that when you are dealing with the consequences of sin, even in times that we uh, cause it ourselves, but most importantly, the times when we don't cause it, it's just life. He loves you. We need to have a picture of what God looks at us like when we're in our trials. We need to have a picture strong in our mind about what he did to try to take us out of that. He went to the cross so that we could experience fullness of life here and now. So a couple of things to close and just things that you can use to help you in guiding you how to respond to all this. First of all, I want to commend and encourage you, our church. I want to commend and encourage you guys because I have seen so many of you do what I've talked about today so well. I'm quite literally preaching to the choir, quite literally preaching this to people who I've seen live this out. And it might not have worked out in your trials that a miracle happened at the end and how great that is and we can celebrate it. But I think what is even more powerful is when those of you with heartbreak and difficult trials that you're going through, you come here every Sunday and you worship You come and you are faithful, because I think what I'm seeing is you are doing what Jesus calls us to do. You're living by believing, and I am so grateful to get to watch you all do that. That's glorifying to God. That's glorifying to God so much. I can't even even quantify it. You've done it so well. If you've been in an in-between place between that pain and comforting, I want you to realize today that you could declare to him, I want to, from this point forward, go on. I want to believe in you. I want to trust in you. I want to trust in your heart for me. So you could do that. Finally, maybe you have allowed yourself to give into the temptation to have a question for God that turned into questioning his character, his heart for you, questioning who he is, Maybe it's time to repent of that and turn and go back and go, I'm going to believe now, Lord. So maybe that's something that we can do. One last quote that I'll close with that I think just sums this up so well is, the afflictions of the saints are designed for the glory of God. How many times would we, in our trials, be 
encouraged if we could just remember that this is meant to somehow, some way, turn into glorifying God. And it might be deep below the surface, and I might have to wait a while, but this is meant for God's glory. It's hard to find that place, but, but it's our call, okay? Uh, I'm all done. Pastor Dan's going to come pray. Thank you for listening. Thank you for showing me and preaching to me with your actions the way to do what we talked about this morning. Okay, thank you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I believe you answered prayer today. My prayer at the beginning of this service was that you would meet us, Lord, um, where we need met and help us where we need it and speak to our hearts, and I believe today that you did that. So I pray in the encouragement of this message, Lord, that we find the joy of the Lord by simply knowing this. One of the things that your word teaches us is that the Holy Spirit of God, one of the roles is you are our comforter. So I pray that you would meet us, comfort us as we need it, Lord. But help us to come to you, to sit on your lap, to talk to you, and cry out, Abba, Father, that you might minister to us and help us. Help us to cast our cares upon you, that you might care for us, Lord. There's a dynamic in there that we have to come to you. And that's in this story that Pastor Tanner shared this morning, Lord, is one of the things that has always struck me. Is in the hurt, the confusion, the pain, the suffering, Martha and Mary went to the Lord. That's what we need to do. And when we go to you, Lord, and you give us that comfort that only you can provide, that comfort strengthens us in our faith exactly like we were taught this morning so that we can get up and go and show the people the glory of the Lord and how absolutely incredible your grace is in our lives because without your grace, we can't do it. So, Father, may we be a church in the name of Jesus that lives in the comfort of the Lord by your grace and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, you are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone. Just a quick reminder, we got a short council meeting in between services today. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.